Hi, and welcome to the Fi Buy, your bi-weekly source for rapid-fire board game reviews. In this episode, Sarah tries to survive the cruel depths of space in Deep Space D6. I push my luck in the card game, Push. Luke enters the fantasy adventure game of Vindication, and John avoids some nasty creatures in Legendary Encounters, an alien deck-building game. But first, Mason makes the lowest score count in Ingenious. Hi, I'm Mason Weaver. I'm a little bit under the weather this week, but let's talk about Ingenious. I've covered other abstracts before, and I've covered other Reiner Knizia games before, but I don't think I've ever covered a Reiner Knizia abstract game here on the 5 by. There's obviously a fair argument to be made that most Knizia games are actually abstract regardless of theme, but Ingenious, first published by Cosmos in 2004, is pure. No theme whatsoever. In Knizia's Ingenious, you are placing hexagonal dominoes, that is to say, two hexagons stuck together, on a board and scoring points based on matching color lines. There are six different colors, and every time you place a domino, you score the color lines it touches, and then you move your scoring cube up the track. You go back and forth until the board is locked up and no one can place any more tiles. Now, in someone else's game, you'd probably count up all your points across all the colors at the end, but since this is a game by the good Dr. Kinesia, you only get to score your lowest color. This is a trick he loves to pull on us, and something that I've used in solo or two-player variants to keep you from running away with a game. You can see my long-ago piece on Dirk Hen's Metro back in episode 34. In Ingenious, only lowest score counts mitigates a lot of what could be an otherwise unbalanced game. If you were only playing to a total point goal, the input randomness of your tile draws could, potentially, put a single player so far ahead that it would be almost impossible for them to lose. It might not happen regularly, but it's certainly a possibility. A person could, potentially, play Ingenious with exactly the same rules, but change the end game to, yeah, it's normal, total all your points, but I think it would gut most of what's really great about the game. I think you'd lose all of the tension, and the emergence would become about domination, not about balance. It would be attack instead of restraint. And those are the elements in this game that keep me coming back to it. Ingenious is solidly in my top tier of weeknight games. Those are games that you can bring out even when you're both worked a full day. The rules are simple, it doesn't take too long, and there's not really much setup, but it still engages the part of my mind that often needs soothing after a long hard day at Spacely Sprockets. It's not a game we've ever played with more than two people, though the box claims to play till four. I don't think it would be bad with four players, but it might become more of a casual time passer. Much of what makes Ingenious enjoyable and engaging is planning your patterns turn to turn, and I don't see how that would really even be possible for more than two players. The board state would potentially change so drastically before your next turn, it seems like it might become purely tactical. And I love tactical games, but there are probably better ones out there than four-player Ingenious. I spend a lot of my Ingenious playing time thinking, how can I cut her off without cutting myself off? And worrying that I'm spending too much time worrying about what Megan is doing, and not enough time worrying about my own score balance. A lot of my favorite games have that in common. The ability to bog me down in secondary strategies, or present attractive nuisances that I should be able to ignore but just can't. Part of that is the emergence that happens when you play against the same person all the time. You're trying to second-guess them, get inside their head, and anticipate their motivations. For me, that's what usually keeps me coming back to a title over and over. Learning complex rules doesn't excite me much anymore, but playing the same game with the same person over and over can build up a layer of complexity on top of a simple rule set in a way that I find far more fulfilling in the long run. There are a number of editions of this game from various publishers, and depending on where you live, some of them may be easier or more difficult to come by. I personally own the 2004 Fantasy Flight Blue Box Edition, which you can buy used for basically the same price as a new copy of the current 2018 Red Box Cosmos Edition. The Blue Box Fantasy Flight Edition has thicker tiles and a higher quality score track. 
There's also a mildly crappy Redbox Fantasy Flight Mass Market Edition, but you don't want that. It has cardboard tiles. I'd actually like it if someone made a deluxe version of this game using thick molded tiles like Hive or traditional American-style dominoes, but I probably wouldn't be willing to pay whatever it would cost. There are about 10 different games in the Ingenious family, but you don't really want or need any of them other than the original. There's a card game. There's a dice game. There's an extreme version. There's some weird new version called Axio that's the same game but with squares instead of hexagons for some reason. I don't get it. There's also a kids version and a puzzle game using the same pieces, but none of these are as highly rated or as well regarded as the original game. They all kind of seem like cash-ins on a beloved title, and that almost never works out well. So don't bother with them, and definitely don't buy the crappy Ingenious Challenges expansion, because apparently everyone really hates that one. So, who should play Ingenious? People who love Reiner Kinesia games. People who love two-player abstracts. People who want to teach an abstract to a non-gamer and people looking to play games with people who don't speak the same language that they themselves do. I give Ingenious 9 out of 9 expansions, re-implementations, and other versions that you do best to completely ignore. I'm Mason Weaver. You can find me on Twitter and occasionally Instagram at Discount Compost. I play a lot of solo games, and my favorite solo games are short to medium games that aren't too fiddly, don't take up a ton of table space. I love a game I can play to unwind when I get home from work and watch an old movie at the same time. Deep Space D6 fits the bill perfectly. Designed by Tony Go and published by Go's company Tau Leader Games, Deep Space D6 is a worker placement game with an engaging premise. You're stranded in space and you need to defend yourself against enemy threats until help arrives. The threats are a deck of cards which each do different bad things like lower your shields, damage your hull, or send a worker to the infirmary, meaning you have to set aside one of your dice and have fewer actions. You turn over one card at a time and roll a single d6 to see which threats activate that round. Your defense is six custom d6 that represent your workers. You place them on your ship to restore shields, repair the hull, get dice out of the infirmary, or remove threats. Which is the ultimate goal of the game, remove all the threat cards before they destroy your hull. You spend a lot of time rolling dice in Deep Space D6, thus the name Deep Space D6. There are four different ships you can play, and the dice actions differ, sometimes a little and sometimes a lot, depending on which ship you use. The ships add a good amount of variety, as the strategy may be totally different from one ship to another. The ships also vary widely in difficulty level, letting you ramp up the difficulty as you learn the game. One of the ships is recommended for beginners, and another is called out as being for expert players only. Although I have to admit, I thought the expert ship seemed unwinnable the first couple of times I played it. Then I realized that ship has a mechanism that seems really appealing, but is a honeypot, a trap. Once I stopped falling for it, the expert ship became a more reasonable challenge. The different actions from ship to ship do add a bit of a learning curve, and here I have to mention my only real criticism of Deep Space D6, the rulebook. It's not good. Unclear, often ambiguous or confusing, too much left out. Just one example. There's necessary setup information printed on the inside box cover and not in the rulebook, and the box has a hinged cover that is nice, but kind of encourages you to close it. Once the lid is closed, it's hard to know that information is in there. There's one little note in the rules telling you to look inside the box, but why not just have that information in the rulebook in the first place? To me, this is a bizarre choice. I had my laptop open during my entire first game because I spent that entire game looking things up trying to find board game geek posts that explained what did this or that card mean, what do I do in situations the rules don't describe, what the heck was going on. In fact, although I enjoyed that first game, when it ended, I literally did not know if I'd won or not. I had to go back, reread the rulebook, and do some more googling the next day to figure it out. Spoiler alert, I had not won. 
but that's okay. I don't want to win a solitaire game every time I play. I'd like to say that I hope the Deep Space D6 rulebook would improve in future printings, but while I was searching BGG for rules information, I found a thread where designer Tony Go defended the rulebook. He seemed pretty comfortable with the way they're written, so I wouldn't expect any major changes. Deep Space D6 was originally part of a solitaire print-and-play contest in 2015, then was offered by Tau Leader Games on Kickstarter in 2016 and again in 2017. There are unscrupulous sellers on eBay and Amazon Marketplace offering Deep Space D6 for way too much money, but you can get it at a reasonable price direct from the publisher, TauLeaderGames.com. If you like the idea of Deep Space D6 but aren't into solo, there's a Kickstarter campaign for a multiplayer co-op version of the game called Deep Space D6 Armada. The campaign is going on right now and will have about a week to go when this episode of the 5 by drops. Now, I have to warn you that I backed the second Kickstarter of Deep Space D6 in 2017, and it delivered about a year late, with so little communication that I'd pretty much given up on it when it finally did arrive. That said, it did arrive eventually, so no harm done, I guess. Just, if you back the new game, don't make plans based on having it by a certain date. The component quality is... reasonable. The graphic design is simple, and though not exactly elegant, very easy to read, which is very important to me. The custom dice are nice, and I really like how small the box is and how well everything fits inside the box. No wasted space. The box design strongly resembles a choose-your-own-adventure book, which is kind of cool, but maybe a bit confusing now that choose-your-own-adventure is also a game. The cards do feel a bit flimsy, like they might not hold up to that much shuffling, and Deep Space D6 is a fast enough game that I like to play several times in a row, which could lead to a lot of shuffling. Then again, there are worse things than a quick tactical solo game that I enjoy so much that I play it so often that the cards start to wear out. That is a good problem to have. And that's Deep Space D6. My name is Sarah. Look me up on Twitter, at Sarah Ovenall. Especially if you know of a good how-to-play video for Deep Space D6. Then I really want to hear from you. At first glance, Push looks like an Uno deck. And for full disclosure, Push was a giveaway at BGG 2018, and I didn't pick it up because it looked very similar to an Uno deck. At the risk of sounding like a board game snob here, I'm definitely not playing Uno with you. There are plenty of better card games out there, for even the most inexperienced gamers. It wasn't until about six months later that someone introduced me to Push, and I enjoyed it so much that I immediately purchased a copy. Push, a short card game published by Ravensburger and designed by Prospero Hall, is a game I often travel with because it essentially is a thick deck of cards and what six-sided die. This 25-minute game works well with a mid-sized group of 2-6, to six, and I love busting it out with new and older gamers alike. The deck has cards ranging from 1-6 to six in 5 different colors, as well as switch cards and roll cards, which I'll explain later what they do. On your turn, you draw one card at a time from the deck until you want to stop or until you bust. When you draw a card, you must play them into one of three stacks in the middle of the table. The rules for placement in the stacks is that you cannot have the same number or same color in any of the stacks. If there's a blue 2 already face up in the center in one stack, you cannot place a 2 of any other color or another blue card in that same stack. As the active player, it's up to you how you want to build out those stacks. You can even keep them all in one stack if you follow the rules of placement correctly. The stacks are important because each card contains victory points based on a number on it. If you decide to stop before busting, you select any one of those stacks and play and sort them into your bench in front of you by color. 
the next person to your left grabs the second stack if there is one, and so forth. The switch cards that are drawn during this player's turn change the direction of who picks the next stacks next. Instead of the stack selection going to the player on the left, it now goes to the player on the right, and so forth. Switch cards aren't placed into the stacks either. They're just shown on the side for reference during that active player's turn. Cards on your bench are worth victory points at the end of the game. They are, however, not completely safe from the dreaded push die. If the active player draws a roll card, they must place it into one of the stacks that already doesn't have one in it. Roll cards also follow the placement rules like all the other cards. When a player grabs a stack with a roll card in it, they must roll a six-sided die. Each side of the die has exactly one color on it, and then a black square. Whatever side the die lands on, the player loses all of those matching colored cards from their bench. It's quite devastating when you lose a bunch of points this way. If the die lands on the black side, all your cards are safe for the time being. Also, if you keep drawing and flip over a card that you cannot place, you bust. You must also roll the die, and you don't get to pick up a stack. Instead, the next person gets the first choice. Lastly, on your turn, you can choose not to draw cards, but instead bank one pile of your colored stacks. If you decide to do this, you flip over those cards, and then it's the next person's turn. All those cards you flipped over will be safe from the dreaded push die. Gameplay continues until you finish the entire deck. Players calculate their VPs based on the cards that are both in their bench and those banked face down, and the person with the most VPs wins the game. For non-heavy gamers, I like to play a variant I created for this game. Instead of placing the roll card into one of the stacks in front of you on your turn, the active player just rolls the die and faces the consequences. That sense of impending doom adds to the experience, as everyone can relate to that jack-in-the-box feeling. Will this next card wipe out 12 points of red cards you have sitting in front of you? Why yes, yes it will. It most definitely will. I like to reserve the option of placing the roll card into a pile for more experienced gamers. Push is perfect for a chill night with friends, whether you're gathering around the bar or dining table chatting. It also has a very small footprint, so it's easy to transport. It unfortunately isn't very colorblind friendly, as there aren't any symbols on the card to differentiate the various colors. Other than that, it's a fun game that is easy to jump into and creates lots of laughter and merriment. When you egg on the active player by saying, no, no, there's no way you're going to bust, and then they do. And that's Push. This is Meeple Lady for the 5 by. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as Meeple Lady, or on my website, BoardGameMeepleLady.com. Thanks for listening. Bye. Today, I'd like to talk about component decisions. When you look at a game's design, it's usually pretty easy to understand what components it needs. Punchboard tokens, mounted boards, cards, and maybe some wooden bits and meeples. In my experience, it's also pretty easy to discern what would make a good quote-unquote premium or deluxe upgrade for a game. Punchboard chits become heat transfer wood, cardboard currency becomes metal coins, player tokens get nifty shapes or evolve from meeples to miniatures. Which is why some of the component decisions in Vindication absolutely baffle me. But I'm going to set all that aside for a minute to talk about the actual game, because I really, really love it. Vindication is a 2018 Euro game from first-time publisher Orange Nebula. It is 100% a cube-pushing, worker-movement, resource-management game dolled up in all the frippery of a sandbox adventure. 
The high fantasy theme, like with most Euro games, is a thin veneer with very little connection to gameplay. But I will say that it results in an absolutely beautiful game with fantastic art and a stunning table presence. At its core, Vindication is a worker movement game in the vein of titles like Vinos and The Gallerist, although considerably lighter. When full, the board is made up of 19 hexagonal tiles, laid out such that the triangular spaces between the tiles become worker spots. Rather than having a bunch of workers to activate board locations, you have a single adventurer who moves around the board each turn and can activate any space they're adjacent to. The board starts with only the spaces directly adjacent to player pieces in play. When a player moves, they draw new location tiles from the bag and place them on any spaces their adventurer passed. So each play, the arrangement of locations is wildly different and requires tactical adjustments to build an engine based on how far your character can move and where the juicy locations are clumped up. It's a really cool twist on the one worker style of gameplay that, in my opinion, adds a lot of replay value. The key resources in the game are represented as character attributes, all of which convert to and from a basic resource called influence. Influence is used to gain the basic attributes of strength, knowledge, and inspiration, which can further combine into the heroic attributes of wisdom, vision, and courage. Separately, influence can also be upgraded into a special attribute called conviction, which can be used to augment card draws or keep a minion alive while battling monsters. As cool as these sound, they're really just resources used to buy companion and item cards. Each edge of the board displays one of the six attributes, as well as the card type you can purchase with that attribute, so everything is very easily parsed when making the decision of what to buy. The general flow of the game is to visit board spaces to upgrade influence into usable attributes, then use those attributes to buy cards, which give you special abilities you can activate using influence. The beauty of that cycle is that spending attributes to gain cards doesn't lose you those cubes, they just return to your influence sphere to be used again. It's a game of balancing where your cubes lie and how much influence you hold in reserve and figuring out a structure of turns that'll net you the best benefit. Vindication is an efficiency puzzle with light engine building and area control elements. That sounds pretty standard for Euro games, but honestly, it's one of the most unique puzzles I've played in the last several years. Designer Mark Needlinger has twisted and warped a lot of the Euro game staples in ways that make it feel fresh and interesting, if not always well balanced. But as I said earlier, a couple of the component choices just flabbergast me. For example, anyone who follows me on Instagram knows I love metal coins, but in Vindication, the adventurer pieces are rectangular metal coins which snap into standee bases, and poorly, I might add. This game just screams for player miniatures, and they not only chose something wildly out of place for its function, but something that actively makes it harder to tell where your character is on the board. Now, there are some giant, beautiful miniatures in the game. The catch? They are barely used in gameplay. As part of the included Guilds and Monuments expansion, their only use is to signify to other players that you've completed your own personal monument. The minis don't go on the main board, they're never touched before a monument's completed, and forgotten once they are. And if you're not playing with the Guilds and Monuments module, which, in truth, isn't that great anyway, they're not used at all. It's not just a confusing component decision, it's a baffling financial one. The same functions could have been accomplished by players flipping over their monument board and having a nice piece of art there, and the money pumped into these minis could have been redirected into actual player miniatures or more game content. Nothing in the game warrants these minis' existence, and they pump up the size of the game box to boot. I just flat don't understand the thinking here. Although I love it, Vindication is a difficult recommendation. At an MSRP of $100, it's hard not to think that a big chunk of that price is tied up in excessive components with little use. The online street price is around $70, which muddies that equation somewhat, but it still feels expensive to me. 
It is a really wonderful game, and without all the weird flu-fluvers and slu-slunkas would have made for a no-brainer purchase at $40 to $50, but that's not the direction they chose to go. As a massive component nut, it's weird to hear myself say this, but Orange Nebula just chose poorly in their deluxe implementation, and I hope someday they follow Seventh Continent's example and release quote-unquote Vindication Basic with just normal components at a lower price. It is a really, really fun game, though. My name is Luke, and you can find me customizing my games on BGG and Instagram at PixelArtMeeple or on my website PixelArtMeeple.com. Thanks for listening, and happy gaming! Back in 2012, Upper Deck Entertainment released a prolific and long-titled deck builder, Legendary, a marble deck building game. The game, designed by Devin Lowe, resonated with fans of card games and Marvel comics so much that at the time of this recording, there are about a dozen small box expansions and six big box standalone games that can be mixed in with the original game. In 2014, Upper Deck Entertainment released an alien movie franchise themed version of its legendary deck building game, the equally long titled Legendary Encounters, an alien deck building game. Designers Ben Tchaikovsky and Daniel Mandel took Devin Lowe's legendary design and infused it with a heavy dose of alien theme. The game plays like most other deck builders. You draw cards, some of which you can use to buy more cards for your deck and some that let you carry out actions and attack enemies. Narratively, the game takes place in any of the first four Alien films, Alien, Aliens, Alien 3, and Alien Resurrection. Physically, the game takes place on an included neoprene mat which has plenty of room for the various decks that make up the game's playing area. There are so many decks in this game, more decks than on the medical research station the USM Auriga from Alien Resurrection or something. I really apologize about that reference. The back of the box boasts that there are over 600 playable cards in the game. And while we all know that quantity is no substitute for quality, you have to admire just how many cards that is. There's a chunky deck that gorily details the varying ways one can meet their demise in the alien movie universe. There's decks upon decks of characters that serve as the barracks from where players can buy cards representing some of their favorite characters from the first four alien films. There's a hatchery deck that supplies facehugger and chestbuster cards when the game calls for them, but honestly I feel that it's primarily there to remind the player that the game has some nasty surprises in store. But the game revolves around the Hive deck, a cardstock analog for a typical alien movie screenplay. Setting up for a play of Legendary Encounters, an alien deck building game involves creating the deck you'll be playing against from a decent selection of cards representing objectives, enemies, hazards, and events. What you end up with is a three-act scenario that covers some of the memorable beats of each of the first four Alien films. It's a very modular process and you can choose to recreate one of the movies or just create a remix of your own, which goes a long way towards keeping the game fresh after multiple plays. Once you're all set up and ready to play, at the beginning of each player's turn, a card from the Hive deck is placed in the complex, and as soon as another card comes out, it pushes the previous card forward. The game leans into its theme here by having the cards remain face down until a player scans them. So those ventilation shafts you're tasked with barricading as one of three objectives, those cards are hiding somewhere in the Hive deck and in the complex with all the Xenomorphs, Facehuggers, and other bad guys. I love this little touch that brings some of the suspense that the first movie is known for. Cards from the Hive deck that are pushed out of the complex's 5 spots enter the combat zone, and once there, they cause the active player to draw strikes from the strike deck at the end of their turn. It's a mechanism that the Alien game shares with its Marvel predecessor but fits better with the Alien theme. You often end up feeling a bit overwhelmed as more and more cards fill up the complex in a conga line of extraterrestrial terror. And that's great because it manages to capture the feeling of the second Alien movie, Aliens, in which the characters are swarmed by hordes of aliens. 
And frankly, what more can you ask for from a movie license game for than it to invoke some of the mood that underscores the source material? And it's so strange and wonderful to me that a card game can convey some of the tension and excitement of these films. But I have to ask myself, is this a game that stands on its own design merits? Does it rely too heavily on its nostalgic ties to its filmic material? Well, kind of. As a deck builder, the alien-themed version of Legendary Encounters doesn't exactly break the mold. It's pretty much your standard deck building fare. You play and buy cards, striving to put together a deck of cards that can combo together for progressively stronger and more efficient turns. And here's where the game kinda gets in its own way. Cards that let you remove other cards from your deck are pretty limited. So making a streamlined deck is difficult, and if you're not careful, your deck can get clogged up during those crucial final moments when you really need a great hand. It's something minor that keeps the deck building aspect of legendary encounters in an alien deck building game from being something spectacular. Having said that, I do enjoy the game for what it is, a competent deck builder that loves its source material and makes some pretty effective connections between theme and mechanics. Whether it's something that you'd want to add to your collection, or even something you'd like to play depends on two factors. Do you like the alien movies? Do you enjoy deck building games? If you like deck builders but not the Alien franchise, there are other games in the Legendary Encounters series with different TV and movie IP themes. There's Firefly, James Bond, The X-Files, and Buffy the Vampire Slayer. If those aren't your particular brands, well, it's like Mark Twain said about the weather in New England. If you don't like it, just wait a few minutes. For the 5 by, I'm John Gonzalez. Thanks for listening. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter as Book of Nerds. Thanks for listening to the 5 by. If you'd like to follow us, please do on Twitter at 5 by Games, like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash 5 by Games, join our BGG Guild at number 2810, listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play, or just follow all the links you can find on 5bygames.com. The 5 by is part of the Inside Voices Network. Find more of our great content, like Great Way Games, at insidevoicesnetwork.com.